Finally, before we begin, this week there was a concerning incident that I would like to address before the service starts. Uh, an angry letter was sent anonymously to my home. It is presumed that this came from a congregant because the sender had access to my home address and based on the contents of the letter. I find this incident to be concerning and inappropriate for two reasons. First, it is a clear violation of personal boundaries to send something of this nature to my home. During the pandemic, I am still present in the church offices, even though I am working from home more than I have in the past. I happily welcome items of a personal nature sent to my home, joke clippings, cards, things like that. In fact, I got quite a lovely thank you card this week from someone uh, who loves their new star word. Those sorts of, of mail and personal items are of course, always welcomed in my home. That is why my address is in the church directory. However, the nature of this letter that was sent this week was completely and utterly inappropriate to be sent to my home. So, to be sure we're all clear on this, angry letters and critiques about my preaching or my leadership should be sent directly to the church office and not to my home. Secondly, we in the body of Christ do not deal in anonymity. Anonymous letters do not offer a chance for real conversation or growth for either party. They are a toxic and a manipulative behavior that does serious and long-lasting damage to entire communities, to churches, workplaces, families, etc. This sort of behavior cannot abide in a faith community. I am always welcoming, as many folks in both congregations have learned over the years we've been together, of having hard conversations about the things we disagree on. I do not expect anyone to agree with me all of the time. If you have a concern or a critique about my preaching, my leadership style, my hair, my clothes, or anything else in the myriad complaints pastors hear on a near daily basis, I would appreciate the common courtesy of coming to me personally about it. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 tells us how we are to handle conflict in quite clear terms. If someone offends you in some way, you are to go to them directly and talk to them about it. If they refuse to talk to you or you are unable to work out your differences, get a mediator, bring a friend to get involved. And finally, if that does not solve the problem, get church leadership involved on an official level. Anonymous letters attempt to bypass that and to sow suspicion and distrust. In this particular case, by nature of the anonymity of the sender, the sender has refused a conversation or mediation about this particular issue. Therefore, the church leadership, the session, has been made aware of the situation and it is now in their hands. I am not concerned that there is someone out there that disagrees with me on something. I fully expect there to be people who disagree with me on something. That is how we grow in community together. And I hope that in the future you are all willing to come to me personally with the things that are bothering you. I pray that in those moments we are able to learn from one another and grow together. 
My concern is that we as a community seek to avoid this week's sort of bullying behavior in the future and to work out our disagreements kindly, directly, and in accordance to scripture. With that, friends, know that even and especially when we disagree on things, you are loved. We are siblings in Christ called to be a different sort of community than what we see around us. Let us seek together to reflect that reality to all, and may the peace of Christ be with you all. Let us pray. Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Hebrew scripture reading this morning is from Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 and 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Our gospel reading today is Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. I absolutely love the book of Jonah. It's one of my very favorites in all of scripture. And I'm a bit disappointed that in today's lectionary selections, we only get a few verses from it, and we have none of the, the parts leading up to today's section in this part of the lectionary cycle. Maybe I'll need to drop Jonah in as a sermon series or Bible study sometime in the near future. But either way, let me give you a quick recap of how we got to where we are in Jonah's story. So God pops in one day and says to Jonah, I'm going to need you to go tell the people in Nineveh that their city is doing some mean, messed up stuff, and they need to knock it off, or their enemies are going to come in and level the place. Jonah, as would many, a reasonable person asked to go confront one of the greatest powers in the world with a stern word from God, packs up and hops on a ship going in the other direction. God is not amused. So in the midst of a storm at sea, the guys in charge of the boat that Jonah's on, running the other direction, these guys realize that there is a higher power out there that is really super mad at someone on that boat. And the only reasonable way to stop that storm is to figure out who the culprit is and toss them overboard. So they draw straws, seems legit, and Jonah pulls the short straw. So over he goes, and the storm stops. But God's not done with Jonah yet, so instead of letting him drown, he sends a huge fish to swallow him. I love how in the Hebrew, God, it says God assigned the fish, ordained the fish, it's the same word used later in the Old Testament to describe the roles of holy jobs in First Chronicles. And this word's used a lot in Jonah. We'll have to do a word study on it when I get to that Jonah series. Anyway, Jonah sits around inside this fish for a couple of days, talking to God. And then the fish finally throws Jonah up on dry land. And God says, so Jonah... Now, about that thing I asked you to go do in Nineveh. And this time, Jonah begrudgingly goes. When we're kids in Sunday school, Jonah is often depicted as being kind of sneaky or shady or cowardly or something because he didn't go straight to Nineveh, because he wasn't immediately obedient to God's call to go there. But I don't think Jonah was sneaky or shady or 
cowardly in his disobedience. Jonah was completely and totally human. He was legitimately scared for his life because of what he was asked to say. Nineveh was a huge superpower in what is modern-day Iraq. Jonah was not going to some backwater place where he would be met well. He had to go confront a huge kingdom with their corporate sins. Not the individual sins that each person was doing, but the sins of the whole community. That would have been a daunting task indeed. Repent, or 40 days from now, you're going to get overthrown by your enemies. Who says that? Jonah is not calling out specific Ninevites. That's not the word he's given. In fact, the prophets are rarely given a word for individual people. Usually, their word is for whole communities. Sometimes they have a word for a specific leader in charge, but the goal is to have that leader help start community change. So Jonah is calling out Nineveh as a whole, as an entity. I think it's probably safe to assume that there were people in Nineveh who weren't directly or maliciously contributing to the problems that were addressed in God's word to Nineveh. As we see in today's passage, the people of Nineveh do repent. And this is a bit of a surprise, because usually in Hebrew scripture, when God sends a word like that, we either find out that the people didn't repent and were totaled, like Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll be getting to soon on, uh, in Thursday Bible study, or we never hear the outcome because the word about repentance is the important part. In Jonah, however, we hear very little about the, what the word is that Jonah is asked to deliver. This book is more about his call and his story and the response of Nineveh than about the specific word he was asked to carry. We just know that it was a word of repentance for the community. And I think that's significant when we look at this passage next to the call of the disciples. Like Jonah, Jesus' message that he asks the disciples to help him carry out, his message about God's kingdom goes beyond individual behavior. It's a message about a different way of being with one another. Jonah announces God's plan, while Jesus, God incarnate, announces his own. Jonah knows how dangerous and fruitless this mission could be, so he freaks out and runs the other way. Jesus knows how dangerous but fruitful his mission is, and he begins with a confidence we do not see in Jonah. It's a great comparison of how we humans don't always get it right, and it highlights God's grace and second chances when we don't manage to do things just like Jesus did. All throughout 
the Gospel of Mark, we hear Jesus proclaiming God's kingdom. You can see this in Mark 1, 15, 4, 26, 4, 30, 9, 1, 9, 47, and the list goes on. This is no small concept, no small idea for Jesus in Mark's Gospel account. And in fact, we see it throughout Christian scripture and throughout all four Gospels. The gospel message is always attached to this idea of the kingdom of God. And when the gospels refer to the kingdom of God, they are referring to something more than just heaven later after we die. It has real implications in real time. Jesus' message is important to individual people for sure. But we cannot forget that it's about a new way of life together. It's about how God's people, those who have committed to living into their identity as those redeemed by Jesus Christ, look different, not just as individuals, but especially in the way they interact together and the way they build their community together. It's ordinary people gathered into this new way of being together. Jesus doesn't call anyone particularly interesting or different by the world's standards. He walks along the shores past who even knows how many fishermen, and a few set down their nets and follow him. It's totally crazy if you think about it. God, God shows up walking around on earth with the same kind of feet that we have, walking on the same dirt that we walk on, and instead of picking who the world says is the best of the best, he hollers at a couple of regular old fishermen. What's even cooler is that Jesus calls them as an extension of their current work. He doesn't set up what he's calling them to do as being above or better than what they are already doing. It's building on to who they are. He says, hey, fishermen, have I got a catch for you? God cares about the way we live as a community. Not just the things we do or don't do as individuals in our lives. God cares enough about that to send poor Jonah to one of the superpowers of the world to tell them, stop it. God cares enough about that to come to earth in human flesh to do kingdom and community building right here in our time and space. If we focus only on individual piety and salvation, we miss half the message. Jesus came for the salvation of individuals and for the salvation of humanity as a whole. It is the church's job to reflect that. Christ established the church to be a place to worship, yes. But more so, to be a reflection of God's desire for community and relationship in a world full of broken community and relationship. That's what the kingdom of God is at hand means. A new way of being together is coming. 
This passage in Jonah says, when God saw how they turned from their evil way. Just one evil way that the collective had to turn from. The king repents first, but the really important part is that his example ripples through all of Nineveh. When Nineveh repented, what saved them wasn't that a certain person or a certain number of people repented and changed. What saved them was that the entire community repented and became a new sort of community. Dear church, we aren't Jesus. We aren't the Messiah. Thank goodness, because that is too much pressure. Sometimes we drop our nets and follow Jesus. Sometimes we just keep fishing because that's what we've always done. We are Jonah in our best moments and Nineveh in our worst. We have to work together to find those ways in which we are Nineveh and to repent and turn, all of us together. We have to work together to bring news of God's kingdom and radical new way of being together to the world around us. So how do we reflect the kingdom of God? This is all great as an abstract theological idea, but what does that actually look like in a church? I'm glad you asked. Because we will be spending the next three Sundays until Lent in a short sermon series talking about just that. What does it look like to be the body of Christ? And after that, we enter into the season of Lent, which is a time that we traditionally turn to spiritual practices like fasting, prayer, meditation, and charity in order to grow individually as a community toward that end of being, a holy and set-apart community, together in this place, by Jesus Christ, who is still alive and working in the world to gather his people together today. During the next few weeks, as well as Lent, I'm going to shift the focus of witnessing God at work, to sharing some spiritual practices, um, activities that we can be doing on our own to help us become more aware of where God is working around us. That's what spiritual discipline, what spiritual practices are for. They are so that we can become more in tune with God and seeing God around us. And there will be, as always, invitations for you all to join in the Witnessing God at Work activities, and I will share about that as we go along. Sometimes these uh, specific types of, of practices are referred to as individual spiritual disciplines, but community practices matter too. So in the next five weeks after that, the five weeks I'm preaching in Lent, our student pastor Jacob will be preaching one of the six weeks of Lent, we will focus each of those Sundays on one corporate practice or discipline that helps to shape the church community into a more reflective surface, if you will, to help us uh, reflect the kingdom of God into the world around us. These practices will help us all together as a congregation figure out how to better reflect the kingdom to those around us. 
This is very important work for us to do as we think about how do we want to reestablish or replant ourselves after this pandemic? A question I proposed last week to you all after having heard a colleague mention that, that after this pandemic, every church is going to have to replant or reestablish themselves in some way. Dear ones, church is about more than just Sunday morning worship. Worship together is an essential practice, and it's one that we do pretty well, which is why it won't be one of the five weeks during Lent that we talk about. And that's why we have worked so hard to continue this practice of gathering on Sunday morning to worship, even when it's not safe for our community to gather in person. But worship is not the only practice we are called to. We are called to study, to hospitality, forgiveness, repentance, discernment, baptism, unity, and more. This goes beyond a weekly obligation. And this is also not just work for the pastor and elders and deacons and seminary student. Church leadership is called to model these things, but a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If the general population of Nineveh had left it to the king and ignored the call to all of Nineveh, all of Nineveh as they knew it, would have disappeared. We need each and every part of this body actively engaging in the spiritual life of the community. You don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to have read the Bible in a year or gotten a gold star for Sunday school attendance to do this. You just have to be ready and willing to jump in, try some new things, and grow. We won't be perfect at this, but that's not what Jesus is asking for. He wants regular people. He's not calling you to uproot your identity and life. He's saying, hey, fishermen, have I got a catch for you? He's not asking us to stop being us. He's asking us to be the real us. There's some work and growth involved in that. So let's get started. The kingdom of God is at hand.